Um, this morning, uh, we're going to continue your series in the book of Matthew. And you all have been talking about Jesus being king. For Jesus to be king conveys something. It conveys something about hierarchy. It conveys something about authority. It conveys and connotes awe. It connotes reverence and requires allegiance and obedience. Jesus is king, church. Jesus is our king. This morning in Matthew, we are going to look at two connected conversations but yet distinct, in which Jesus' identity as king is present and also not so present. Uh, If you are able, uh, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, and I'm asking you to stand because it conveys our recognition of the authority of God's word in our lives. If you are not able, that is fine. Please feel free to stay seated. But as we rise, let us read God's word. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Because of his great wealth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, There's more to our scripture that we are going to look at this morning. But I'm going to pause there and make some comments on this section. Before I do that, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and it is active and it does not return void. Uh, Will you bless um, the hearing of your word? Will you make our hearts receptive? Will you... Uh, have your hand over me and give me words that you would have me speak this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This man approaches Jesus and asks him, what good must I do to get eternal life? We know a few things about this man. Uh, we know that he's a man. We know that he's young. Uh, We know that he's wealthy, the scripture tells us. Uh, We also can say that he has a sense of agency. He's a young person who approaches Jesus uh, in the midst of other people, so he feels a sense of agency to approach Jesus. Uh, That may or may not be connected to his material wealth. Um, And it's safe to assume that he has a question about his eternal life. Because he asks Jesus. But we have to ask the question, why does he ask this question in the first place? Why does he ask about eternal life? In his opinion, he has kept the commandments. He responds to Jesus, yes, I've done all of those things. But for him, there is a disconnect for him. Why is there a disconnect between his 
um, obedience, or what he would call obedience, and his question about his eternal life, his assurance of his eternal life. Why is there this disconnect? Why is he asking this question? And I think there are some clues to this in Jesus' response. Jesus quickly responds to him with, just keep the commandments. That's all you have to do. It's already been laid out for you. Just keep those things. The guy responds, which ones? As if some of the commandments are the important ones. Uh, freebie church, that's not the case. All the commandments are important ones. Jesus actually doesn't say that though. Jesus outlines only some of the commandments. The commandments can be roughly thought about as falling into two categories. The categories um, that uh, have to deal with our relationship with God and the commandments that engage our relationship with one another. Two categories. Jesus actually only highlights the relational categories, the ca categories that engage our relationships with one another. Jesus doesn't mention any of the God-directed commandments. And I think he does that intentionally. Jesus, as he is often able, can discern what the real issue is for this man. The real issue, as we see in the scripture, is that this man puts his wealth before his relationship with God. And he is in actuality living a life in violation to the first commandment. Worship me, God, only. No other God before me. That's the first commandment. Jesus knows the real issue for this man. But he doesn't address it directly. Jesus gets at it in a roundabout way through the relational commandments. And Jesus is intentional about that. And this is where I like to think about tone of voice. Like in scripture, a lot of times I'll tell my students, think about the tone of voice uh, that the people are talking with in our scripture stories as a way of immersing ourselves in scripture to understand its meaning and its and its significance. And as I have immersed myself in this story and imagined tone, I think this is one of those instances where Jesus wasn't being polite. Jesus' church was not always polite. In this instance, I think Jesus is starting to get a little sarcastic. I think he's getting a little condescending. He's even maybe being a little bit snarky with this man. This guy is under the assumption that he's done everything right. And I think Jesus' tone starts to get a little like, really? Really? You've done everything right. You've kept all the commandments. You are awesome. And then he kind of hits him. If you want to be perfect... Who could be perfect? Nobody could be perfect. Jesus knows that. But he says, if you want to be perfect, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, experience treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. And as the story says, the man walked away because of his great wealth. 
The cost was too high, and this man didn't want to pay that cost. At the end of this conversation that Jesus has with this man, Jesus desires for this man to be with him. Jesus desires for this man to identify with him. Come and follow me is the last invitation that he receives. Jesus desired for this man to walk with him. And with pinpoint accuracy, Jesus identified what was stopping that. In order to fill out more what this man was lacking. Let's imagine for a second that this man would have actually responded to Jesus. And he would have just done what Jesus told him and sold everything. Let's just imagine that for a second. If he would have done that, sold all of his things, he would have himself been materially poor. If he would have sold all of his things, he would have therefore been poor, and he would have been a part of the very people group that Jesus was asking him to serve with his resources. He would have found himself poor. What would that have done for his outlook on life, his relationships with God, his relationship uh, with the other people in his life? What would that have done for him? Recently, not intentionally, but I was grateful for the experience. My family and I found ourselves in a situation where we didn't have a lot of resources. And it changes the way you think. It changes the decisions that you make. It changes the way you pray and the way you experience God. And that is the change that Jesus desires for this man. He requires that transformation before that man can actually come and follow him. That's what Jesus wants. And that's the invitation that Jesus extends to this man. I got to experience a small window of that. Uh, and my family got to experience a small window of that recently. We were uh, in Taiwan. Uh, my wife is Taiwanese. She's not here right now. She's sick at home. But my wife is Taiwanese and her parents live in Taiwan. So it's a regular uh, practice of ours. We go to Taiwan on a fairly regular basis. We always have a great time. It's a wonderful place of, uh, of memories for us. Generally, while we were in Taiwan, we spend most of our time in Taipei because that's where my wife's parents live. Uh, and generally, we'll go somewhere outside of Taipei just to kind of experience all of the island. We've gone a lot of places on the island of Taiwan. My children, Mateo, my oldest, he really enjoys roller coasters. So we're thinking, like, oh, what can we do outside of Taipei? So we're like, oh, where are all the amusement parks here? So we find an amusement park, and we're like, okay, let's plan a trip there. So we plan, like, a two-ish, two-and-a-half-day trip outside of Taipei to a particular amusement park. Uh, and we go, and we get to, like, the place that we're going to stay, and we realize we didn't put more cash in our wallets. We had left a majority of our cash in Taipei. So we do the math, and we have about $200 worth of cash in our wallets. Now, normally in Taiwan, $200 to get by for two and a half days, you're good. It's, it's all good. You're, you're totally fine. So no stress at that point. So we need to go and eat dinner, like, that night. So we're, like, out in the middle of, like, nowhere. We're, like country no lights and we're driving because google maps is you know uh, leading us places and we get to this place where i'm supposed to turn which on the map says it's a street but it's really more like a glorified alley 
and not like the alleys of like Taipei where there's neon lights everywhere. There's like alley pitch black, dark, only lights coming from our headlight. Driving on this road, we're getting a little scared because we're like, where are we? Then we have to make another turn, and this road isn't even a, a road. It's just like dirt, and we're getting even more scared. We're like, where the heck are we going? Uh, and then we come upon some lights, and we see the establishment uh, that Google Maps was leading us to. And it's like a legit place, and this like wave of calm just like crashes over us because we're like legit scared because we're like in pitch black and don't even know where we're going. And it's like a legit place, really nice place, like a garden, patio, seating, outdoor area, koi pond, nice place, great food, but also a little pricey, more than what we wanted to spend. But we didn't know where we were, so we're like, oh, I guess we got to eat here. Um, so we eat there, great food, you pay for the food, you pay for the decor, we spend a little more money than we wanted to. But we're totally fine, we still got money, we still got money, we're good. So we go to the amusement park the next day, and we're starting to feel a little bit more anxious about the money in our wallet, or the amount of money in our wallet. So before we even get into the park, we ask the parking attendant, do, do you all accept credit cards? And the parking attendant said yes. And we're like, oh, great, awesome. Uh, so then we go to the gate of the amusement park, and they do accept credit cards, but not American credit cards. And we're like, oh, great, we're here. We've already told our kids. They could see the roller coasters. Like, we can't back out now. We already paid for parking. So we pay for the cost of four tickets to go. And we enjoy the park. It's great. Do the math now. And we have a little over $30 left in our wallets now. And we're doing the math. And it's like, oh, man, we got, like, still a day's worth of meals to go on these, like, $30. And like I said, it starts to change you. It starts to change the way that you think. It starts to cause some more anxiety. So lunch comes around, and we go into the, um, uh, one of the like, eating establishments in the park, and we go to the counter, and we're not even looking for quality at this point. We're not even looking for preference. We're just thinking quantity. We're just thinking value, substance, and calories. That is like our only criteria for how we are making this choice. We order one meal, and we all share that meal. Like I said, it changes you when you are without resources. And while I was sitting there eating in that establishment, I found myself without resources. And I found myself to get angry. Because I looked at those other tables that hadn't been cleared yet. And the amount of food that was left on those tables. And who would leave that food there? The extravagance, the opulence that these people were just putting on full display to just rub it in my face. I was getting angry at the amount of waste that was there. I did resist the temptation to reach out and take that food. <laughs> I was not that desperate yet. So by that time, we had a little bit less than $20. We leave the park. And, you know, we're an unfamiliar, you know, place, so we're trying to figure out what to do. So we pull into a, um, uh, a parking uh, lot that was close to one of the roads, and there happened to be a convenience store uh, next to it. And I sent my wife in there, and she was just kind of looking. I was like, well, we only got like 20 bucks left. Is there, can we get some food like in there? And across the way, there was an eating establishment. And this eating establishment is burned in my mind. We got the menu of that place, and it was, it was relatively inexpensive, so we decided to eat there. Like, I could find this place on a map. I actually found a picture of it. There's a picture right here. 
This is the place where we ate. It was a godsend for us. Google, you can find everything on Google. And we ate well that night. We ordered, uh, I think, two combination plates, uh, a vegetable dish, and a soup. And it was like 10 bucks. Church, we were materially poor at that moment. And by God's grace, we found this place. And we prayed blessings <laughs> over that place while we were there. It was a meal, but it was worship for me to eat that food. Because I was so grateful for us pulling into that parking lot and us being able to worship God with the food that we were eating. I have never had such a worshipful eating experience in my life. When you are materially without, you experience God differently. And if I'm being honest, you also are tempted to interact with your environment differently. We still had one more meal. We still had breakfast the next morning. And by this time, we had a little bit less than $10 left. So we were there parked at that convenience store, and we walked into the convenience store to figure out if there was anything that was breakfast-worthy in this convenience store. And like I said, you think differently when you are materially poor. And as I am walking through those aisles, I am thinking to myself, they won't miss that. If I slide that into my bag, no one's going to notice. There is so much food here. When you have to feed your family and you are without resources, the line between right and wrong, good and bad, starts to get a little bit blurry. And it was getting blurry for me, church, as I was walking down those aisles. Don't worry, church. If you're getting nervous, I didn't steal anything. Cross my heart, hope to die. If I'm being honest, I thought about it. I mean, I had just come from one of the most worshipful dinner experiences in my life. To being in this convenience store, and I am thinking about violating one of the commandments, don't steal. And I didn't. With the last of our money, we bought some fruit, some yogurt, and some bread. And I think something else, and I don't exactly remember. And that was our breakfast the next morning. For those few short days, very, very short days, my family, we were materially poor. We were materially without. And what was intended to just be a simple vacation, kind of within a vacation, turned into such so much more reflective experience for me. I experienced a small window into what it is like to be materially without. I experienced the tension of feeding my family and the thankfulness and the worship of God when God did provide. To identify as materially poor changes the way you think, the way you pray, the way you experience God. Turning our attention back to the story, back to the man. This would have been his new life. It would have not just been a window for him, it would have been his entire panorama. His entire outlook on his relationships 
with material wealth, his relationship with God, his relationship with the community of God would have changed. The invitation to this man who was materially wealthy was to recognize Jesus for who he truly was. The invitation for this man was to recognize Jesus for who he truly was. Church, Jesus was poor. But this man could not reconcile a life with Jesus that also meant he would be materially without. Jesus was poor. The danger of resources, as we see in this conversation here, and Jesus' commentary in the conversation that follows, we will get to that in a minute, is that the abundance of resources can inhibit our ability to see Jesus for who he actually is. Jesus was materially poor. I've been slowly making my way through this book, Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit. It's a book on archaeology and literature. It's not a page-turner. It's on archaeology and literature. It's not a page-turner. But it does, as the subtitle um, indicates, describe the early life of Galilee and the surrounding regions. The author highlights the danger of reading scripture with only a contemporary lens. And that danger can lead us in what she calls a highly sanitized view of Jesus, his family, and his followers. Nazareth in specific, she writes, the place where Jesus grew up was not a quaint country village. It was more like a slum. It was more like squalor. It paints a picture of this place where garbage and sewage were regularly thrown out into the streets. It's a picture that is grimy, church. But we also don't even need to look at books like this to tell us that. We can just look at scripture itself. We actually don't even to look at all of scripture. We can just focus on Matthew, the scripture that you are all staying in. For this season. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is born and then immediately he becomes a refugee. Refugees are people who have lost everything. They have no social networks and no social capital. When we look at the faces of the refugees in uh, the various crises around the world, we need to see Jesus' face. That was Jesus. And during Jesus' life in Matthew 8, he says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know what we call that? We call that homeless. Matthew 25, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. A couple verses down, truly I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Jesus identified with those who were materially poor throughout his entire life because he himself was also materially poor. Jesus, church, Jesus was poor. 
God's son, Emmanuel, God with us, the linchpin of God's salvific plan for his creation was materially without. To identify with Jesus is also to identify with our materially poor neighbors, whom Jesus also identified with. Let me say that again. To identify with Jesus is to also identify with our materially poor neighbors, because Jesus himself chose to identify with them. That's a hard teaching, church. But also hear this, church. Material wealth, money and resources are not bad. Material wealth, money and resources are not bad. I was, at, I was at another church, and I heard it said, and they were not talking about this scripture in specific, but it relates. It was said, money can be a great servant, but it is a terrible master. Money can be a great servant. If this man would have allowed his wealth to be a great servant, it would have served his materially poor neighbors. And it would have served himself because it would have brought him into closer identification with Jesus. His money could have served, but instead, it was a terrible master. Money can be a great servant, but it can be a terrible master. Let me speak quickly about the second conversation in our scripture this morning. This man has heard the invitation from Jesus, but he has chosen to walk away. Let me pick it up in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus here is offering his commentary on the dangers of excess wealth. When Jesus is, when, picking up in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then could be saved? It was a popular notion during these times that those who were materially wealthy had special favor from God. But as we see in this story, Jesus is trying to introduce another narrative to understand wealth. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There will be some reward for these disciples. Unlike the man these disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In verse 30, we have the refrain that Jesus so often um, uh, speaks in the gospel narratives. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. 
That is the nature of the kingdom of God. That is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. It is absolutely upside down, and it doesn't make any sense. But very briefly, let me focus on verse 29. Uh, Jesus is offering an apologetic for the disciples and their choice to leave everything. They left everything, and they followed Jesus. Verse 29, he offers them his apologetic. To those who have left everything, family, homes, fields, all of these symbols um, uh, of support, symbols of security, they were promised a hundred times as much. How is that possible? How could that be? How does that math work out? Well, it's only possible through the generosity of the church. That math is only possible through the generosity of the church. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, and if we fast forward the story a few years, we get to the early church. In Acts chapter 2, we learn about the early church, where possessions and property was sold and it was given to those in need. That was just commonplace. And the scripture tells us that no one was in need. The disciples would experience, would experience this reality. Jesus' uh, indication of what would be came to be in the early church. The early church followed this Matthew 19 example of viewing their resources as tools for their service of their materially poor neighbors as they identified with Jesus and the community of Jesus. Unlike the man in our text, the disciples and later the early church got it right. In our scripture this morning, we have two dialogues and two distinct outcomes. Both deal with the opportunity of identifying with Jesus, in particular in relation to wealth and resources. The scripture this morning calls us to reflect soberly on our relation to wealth and resources. As I close, let me offer a few invitations. I will say... I don't think the application of this scripture is to sell all of our things. I don't think that's the application of this scripture. As mentioned, I think Jesus is being a little sarcastic. I think he is utilizing hyperbole to prove a point to this man in particular. But that doesn't let us off the hook either. Jesus did comment in general about the danger that faces the dangers that faces us uh, with material wealth. And this passage calls us to reflect soberly on our resources and our relationships, our income, our equity, our retirement plans. All of those have the potential to be excellent servants and at the same time terrible masters. In the early church, as mentioned, there was no need. No one was without. And within our communities, God has blessed those communities with everything everyone needs. Spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and at times, financially. We should be a generous church with one another. So that in our communities, there is no need. Beyond that, our sober reflection on our wealth and our resources should impact our giving. 
Of course, we give to the church, and that is just a given. There's all kinds of biblical precedent for that. Beyond our giving to the church, I would like to offer that we incorporate the value of caring for our materially poor neighbors into our giving. I'm sure that many of us give to a lot of places and individuals outside of the church. Let me ask the question, how is that giving, be it to individuals, organizations, faith-based, secular, wherever it is, impacting the care for our materially poor neighbors? That is not the only category with which to determine how we give our money away and how we um, choose to be generous, but it should be an important one because it is a theme that is echoed throughout Scripture. Lastly, when it comes to our individual spending, before we make that next purchase, ask yourself, is this thing a tool or is it a toy? Tools are great, and tools are for the sake of the benefit of the community. This one time I was at a birthday party, and this particular birthday party was um, of a kid of a family who had just joined our church. And we were sitting around a table, and through the course of conversation, uh, I learned that the the father uh, had made the bench that some of us were sitting on. So my next question was, so what tools do you have? And I asked him that question because I wanted to know what I could borrow. And then I told him what tools I have because I wanted him to know what tools he could borrow. Tools are for the benefit of the community. In that case, we were talking about woodworking tools, but there's so many more tools beyond woodworking tools and table saws and drills. Is that next purchase that you make, is it a tool or is it a toy? I had to pause as I thought about this message because the Holy Spirit conviction came down on me. As pastor said, I play music, and there was this new piece of equipment. Oh, it was so nice. It was so juicy. But right now, that thing is a toy because I don't need that because I actually already have one. So I had to say no because the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell on me. I said no to that thing because right now it would have been a toy. There's nothing wrong with toys, church. There's nothing wrong with toys. On occasion, a toy is a great thing. But let's identify our purchases as such. Is something a tool or is it a toy? At the beginning of our passage, a man inquired about eternal life. And Jesus responded with, if you want to enter life. For this man, entering life would have been an entire reorientation of his world that was not around his material wealth, but was dependent on God and the community of God. At the end of our scripture, in Jesus' conversations with the the disciples, he talks to them about inheriting eternal life. Throughout the whole conversation, even though this guy started the question about eternal life, Jesus doesn't even talk about eternal life. Not once, until the very end. But Jesus frames eternal life as an inheritance. An inheritance is not something that you do 
It is not something that you can earn. An inheritance, rather, is something that is bestowed upon you because of a relationship that you have. Jesus wanted for this man to have a relationship with him. But before this man could really do that, he had to think and act on behalf of his materially poor neighbors. Church, I started by talking to us about Jesus being king. My prayer for us is that we would recognize Jesus as our king. Jesus as king is due all of our allegiance, is due all of our obedience, all of our reverence. Back in the day when you would go before a king or a queen, you would offer a gift. Those gifts were called tributes. It was a gift of some kind in order to recognize the authority of that king or queen. If you were a subject of that king or queen, not only was it a symbol of their authority, but it was a symbol of your allegiance and your obedience to that king and queen or queen. Church, as we recognize Jesus as our king, we must line up and pay our tribute to our king with ourselves, our hearts, and as the scripture says this morning, our resources. Jesus is king. And may we be a people who go before our king and pay our tribute. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have brought here today. Will you continue to show us how you want us to incorporate these words in our lives as we think about our resources, our wealth, and what that means for our identifying of you as our king. We thank you that you are a good king, that you are the servant king. Will you continue to show us every day what that looks like to walk with you.